Hey, raise your hand if, uh, if any of you have been to the Griffith Park Observatory in Los Angeles. Raise your hand. Okay, many of you have. All right, you're going to see a picture of the Griffith Park Observatory in just a moment up on the screen. The Griffith Park Observatory is uh, really one of my favorite spots in Southern California. You know, you get up uh, there on, uh, at the top of the hill overlooking Los Angeles, and the, the site is just magnificent to behold. You know, you got, when you're up there at night, you got the cityscape, you got the stars and the moon in the sky, and it's just, it's just a picturesque setting. If you haven't been, you've got to go, and if you haven't been at night, you've got to make plans to go to the Griffith Park Observatory at night. You won't want to miss it. Well, I, uh, when I was about 19 years old, uh, dating a, a gal named Casey West, soon to be Casey Anderson, uh, I decided that I would take my uh, bride-to-be uh, to Griffith Park Observatory. It was one of our uh, first dates, and I brought her up there. In fact, we, we were just around the corner of that little dome you see right there, overlooking uh, the city of Los Angeles. And I brought her up there thinking, okay, I'm really going to impress her up here. I had a plan uh, to get her up there, to, to let her behold the beautiful city, at night and to let her behold the stars and the moon and the, and the amazing constellation in the sky. And, and I, I just had this idea in mind to just look out at, at this beautiful scene and, and describe what I saw. And as I took her up there and we, we, we sat perched out looking out, I said, honey, I, I, I said, Casey, you know, it was only our first couple of dates, so I wasn't saying honey quite yet. I said, honey, when I... Casey, when I, when I look out there, I see, I see people searching for beauty and, and, and all they need to do is look up into the skies and they'll find beauty. I see people searching for truth and, and searching for meaning in life and, and, and yet they, just, they don't even look up and see the glorious skies above and the glorious creation. And I had all these corny and pathetic statements that I, that I had in my mind to say and I think I said some of them. You can ask Casey exactly what I said. I don't know. But then I got to the point where I wanted to share this experience with her. I wanted to share my, my deep philosophical statements about what I had seen as I looked out across Los Angeles and up into the beautiful sky. And I turned to my wife. I said, Casey, my wife-to-be, that is, my, my girlfriend at the time. And I said, Casey, what do you see when you look out there? And she went, Lights? And right then I knew, opposites attract. <laughs> when I looked out on Griffith Park Observatory into the city of Los Angeles in the beautiful sky, I saw infinite possibilities. I saw beauty and truth and meaning and, 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 and all sorts of wonderful things. And my wife, she saw lights when she looked out there. <laughs> Why do I bring this up? Good question. Friends, today... In Mark chapter 13, we are continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark. And in our study today, we are going to look up and see something in the sky. Today in our study in Mark, we are in part three of a four-part series on the Olivet Discourse. The title of my message today is the prophecy of Mark 13, part three, the coming of the Son of Man. The coming 
of the Son of Man. And if you're not already there, turn in your Bibles to Mark 13. And if you don't have a Bible, grab one in the pew back in front of you and let's follow along. This is a tremendous, tremendous portion of Scripture and concerns a great deal about what we will see in the skies. Mark 13, beginning in verse 24, we're going to make it through verse 31 this morning. Jesus says this, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send His angels and gather together His elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So, all, so you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will by no means pass away. As I've said in the, in the first two messages of this four-part series in Mark 13, a great variety of interpretations of these verses and all of Jesus' words in the Olivet Discourse of Mark 13, uh, a great many interpretations have been put forth over church history. In fact, one such study revealed that there were no less than 50 different interpretations of Jesus' words in Mark 13 and its parallels in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. I want to, and so, so I say that, all that is to say, when we approach Mark 13, we approach it very, very carefully. And we approach it very, very humbly because uh, we've got a 1 in 50 chance of being right here, right? <laughs> what has Jesus been discussing in Mark 13? What has Jesus been discussing in Mark 13? There have been a number of things that we are seeing in Mark 13 in Jesus' prophecy that He's been discussing. Among them are these. First, He's been discussing the coming destruction of the temple in chapter 13, verse 2. Second, Jesus has been discussing false messiahs that would precede the coming of the end. He says that they'll show up and the end is not even yet. Third, wars, earthquakes, famines. These will happen and the end is not yet. It's only the beginning of sorrows. Fourthly, the, the, the disciples would be persecuted. And uh, some would take this to be, mean the disciples. Others would take this to mean those of a future age. Uh, I, I lean toward the disciples here. I see the break at verse 14. Uh, a, which is the abomination of desolation. At that moment, we see now a future time that Jesus is foretelling. A time in which the, the final Messiah, the final false Messiah, the final man of sin, will stand in the temple of God at Jerusalem and declare Himself to be God. And He will erect in that temple, whether it's in the Holy of Holies or on the pinnacle of the temple, He will erect an image of Himself that will be for the worship of all the nations. That is the abomination of desolation. Sixth, Jesus has been speaking uh, of the Jewish flight from Jerusalem. The Jews are to flee from Jerusalem after they see this abomination of desolation. 
Seventh, that there is to be unprecedented tribulation. Unprecedented tribulation after these things. And eighth, that miracle working false messiahs and prophets would arise. And I don't mean miracle in the in the good sense, I mean uh, these are these are these are false messiahs and prophets who are going to be working signs and wonders, which follow quite nicely with the description of the final man of sin and the false prophet in the book of Revelation. These are among the things Jesus has been discussing thus far, but now we come to verse 24, and in verse 24 we see a very key word. And that word is after. I want you to mark that well in your Bibles because that word is critical to the understanding of Mark 13, 24 and following. Jesus says this, but in those days after, in those days after that tribulation, that is to say, after all those topics we've just been looking at, in those days following all the things I've just been describing in Mark 13, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Now that word after is not just unique to Mark, it's also found in Matthew's account, Matthew 24, 29. And so we see here that this is a key word being used by Jesus to delineate when we will see what he is describing. Whatever Jesus is speaking of now in verse 24 will occur after everything he's mentioned thus far in Mark 13. And this word alone, the word after, does great damage to those many interpreters of Mark 13 who wish to limit Jesus' prophecy to the events of A.D. 70 when Jerusalem and its temple was destroyed. But more on that a bit later. The question at hand now is what will happen after the many things we read in Mark 13. Jesus prophesies that great cosmic events will occur in the sky. Notice what he says. He says the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And herein lies a simple question. Is this a literal description of cosmic events or is this a symbolic way of speaking about an earth-shattering event? I say again, is Mark 13, 24 and 25 a literal description of future cosmic events or is it simply symbolic of an earth-shattering event? Some say Jesus' words are merely a great way of indicating an earth-shattering event and there are many, many prominent Bible scholars who agree with this, that the words you read in verse 24 and 25 are merely symbols of something great that's about to happen. And they do have evidence to back up their claim. I will not deny that. Some, some deny that they have any evidence. I, I fully agree that they have some evidence to back up their claim. Most notably, I would argue, is Isaiah 13. Now, in Isaiah 13, some argue that this is to take place uh, this is describing the final fall of Babylon. I disagree. I think that this passage is very much speaking about the fall of Babylon in the 6th century. But let's read it first. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and, the fierce ang- and with fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and He will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. 
The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. Friends, this prophecy of Isaiah is indicating the fall of 6th century B.C. Babylon. I take that to be the case based on a later verse in verse 17 when it speaks of the Medes or the Persians and the Medes coming to destroy them. And so I believe this is a historical event, a historical prophecy, and one in which a cosmic, the use of cosmic symbols are, are employed to describe the destruction of Babylon. In other words, since we have little historical account that during Babylon's fall to the Persians that there was any indication that something was happening in the skies, we might be reasonable to infer that this verse 10 here is actually symbolic of an earth-shattering event. I am very, very much inclined to accept that as the truth. I think in this instance, the speaking of this cosmic event simply describes the earth-shattering event of the fall of 6th century B.C. Babylon. However, having said that, I believe, while I do believe that there is some, uh, some evidence in Scripture that cosmic imagery is occasionally employed to describe an earth-shattering event, having said that, I do not believe it is the biblical norm. In fact, I think it's very, very rarely the case. If it were the norm, then we would have to seriously reconsider a great many Bible stories. Think with me of the great many stories that speak of cosmic events. How about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? How were they destroyed? How was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? Fire and brimstone from heaven. Think of the ninth plague in the Exodus. What overcame the nation of Egypt and Pharaoh? utter darkness. Think of the Exodus wandering of the Jews. What was it during the day that they followed? A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Cosmic imagery that was real, that was not symbolic, that was real. What about in Joshua 10 where the sun stands still for half a day? Or in 2 Kings 20 when the sun retreats 10 degrees? What about the wise men following the star at Jesus' birth? What about the angelic host in the heavens announcing Jesus' birth to the shepherds? What about the transfiguration? What about the darkness of Jesus' crucifixion? And what about the light of God in the eternal order? Are we to chalk all these up to cosmic imagery? I think not. And so while I will concede that, I, that Isaiah 13 may very well be symbolic of the fall of 6th century B.C. Babylon. I do not concede, and I, nor do I think good interpreters of Scripture should, should concede, that when these, this kind of language is, is used, it always refers to symbols. I would say just the opposite is the case. More often than not, when this language is used, it actually refers to an actual cosmic event. And friends, what's interesting here is that, exa that is exactly exactly what God said the skies would be for. Notice in Genesis 1.14, at the very beginning of creation, then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the, night, the day from the night 
and let them, those lights, let them be for signs and seasons and for days and for years. What do we see at the beginning of our scriptures? We see that the lights in the firmaments, the lights in the heavens, the sun, the moon, and the stars are very much given for signs. They are very much arranged in such a way and sometimes uh, their activity is used to indicate heavenly signs. And so when we see a cosmic event described in Scripture, our first thought should be to read it in a literal fashion. Unless there is strong evidence given to the contrary, we should think of Mark 13, verses 24 and 25, as literally the blackening of the sun and moon and a great meteor shower that rattles the universe out of its standard rotation. What happens after this grand event in the sky? Notice verse 26. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Friends, if there ever was a time for a real cosmic event in Scripture, we should expect it to be here. If there ever was a time, we went through a list of about ten, and we could, we could list another twenty. If there ever was a time for a real cosmic event, not a symbolic event, not symbolic cosmic imagery, if there was ever a time for a real cosmic event to occur, it would be here. The coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, on the clouds with great power and glory. And so, the, <clears throat> and so I would say that what better way to behold the Shekinah glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ than amidst a blacked out sky at the end of days. I take Mark 13, 24, and 25, and 26 to be a very literal rendition of what's going to happen at the end of the age. Now, the event we read about in verse 26 can also be compared with uh, what is written by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. We're not going to turn there today, but you might want to make note in your Bibles next to verse 26. So you can write down Revelation 19, verse 11 through 21. Because there you'll find a little bit more uh, description of what that day will look like. In it, Jesus comes on a white horse. He conquers the beast, the false prophet, and all their armies that have come against Israel. And it should not surprise us, it should not surprise us, that preceding that battle, in two of the final three bold judgments listed in Revelation 16, that one of them concerns the darkening of the universe and another concerns a great and mighty earthquake, the shaking of the powers of heaven. We should, find, we should find comparison between what we read here in Mark 13 and what we find in the book of Revelation, and we find it. We find it. And that should give us more confidence that what we're, what we're reading here is a literal event. Mark 13:26 merely says that then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. So my next question is, who is they? Who is they? Who is looking upon the Son at this time? Mark doesn't uh, quite make a full indication of it in the context, but Matthew does. Matthew goes on to say this in the same parallel passage. 
He says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So Matthew adds, Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Who will see Jesus at His second coming? All the tribes of the earth. Now many of you will instinctively read the phrase tribes of the earth and think Israel. After all, Israel was made up of 12 tribes, 12 sons of Jacob. Makes sense, right? Tribes of the earth or tribes of the land. We might expect that to mean Israel. But actually a careful study of that phrase, tribes of the earth, will reveal in Scripture that every time that phrase is used, it's used some six, seven, eight times. Every time it's used, it actually refers to all the inhabitants of the earth. All the inhabitants of the earth will look up and will see this event taking place. In fact, when, when, it, when it's specific to the tribes of Israel, it will be labeled as such, the tribes of Israel or the tribes of the, of the nation of Israel. But when you see the phrase tribes of the earth, you can be sure that that actually indicates more of a universal scope. I refer you to Ezekiel 20.32 and Revelation 1.7 to back that point up. Why do I spend so much time here? Well, all those on earth see Jesus is coming. And all those on earth mourn it. Naturally, included in this group are the Jews themselves. But on this day, on this final day, there will be a great difference between the mourning of the unbelieving armies gathered at Armageddon and the mourning of the Jews. The unbelievers, those who have followed the beast, will mourn because of their sudden destruction. But the Jews will mourn for quite another reason. And that is listed in Zechariah 12. Take a look at this great Old Testament prophecy. And it shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they, the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, then they will look on me whom they pierced. Keep in mind this is written centuries before the time of Christ. They will look on me whom they've pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as, they, as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. At Jesus' second coming, at Jesus' second coming, the Jews will mourn because they will have come to know that Jesus of Nazareth, whom their fathers pierced, is in fact the Messiah, the Savior, the Holy One of God. And they will mourn, and they will grieve, and they will show remorse that their turning in faith to Jesus as Messiah took so long. That it took so long. That their eyes were blinded for so many years. That the eyes of their forefathers and their ancestors were blinded for so many years. They will mourn because it took so long for them to recognize Jesus as Messiah. When will this mourning occur? When will it happen? Zechariah says it will happen in the future. In the future. When God will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Now underline verse 9, friends, in your Bibles. Underline that text. 
That text you should note very, very well. For in it is one of the greatest evidences that that Jesus' second coming is yet to occur. It is yet to occur. Verse 9 says, God will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. What happened in A.D. 70? The nation of Rome came against Jerusalem. But who was destroyed? Jerusalem. Israel. The Jews. Who was destroyed in A.D. 70? It was Jerusalem that was ravished. It was the Jews who were scattered. It was the Romans who came there and judged them and scattered them abroad, captive to all the nations, exiled from their land. What happened in A.D. 70 is not this event in Zechariah 12, 9 and 10. And because of the close resemblance that we find in Mark 13, 26, and Matthew, and Matthew's account of the mourning of the tribes of the earth, the mourning of Israel, when we liken it to Zechariah 12, we can be sure that what we're reading in Mark 13 is not concerning the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. It can't be. If the parallel is there, if Matthew 24.30, the description of mourning, can be compared with Zechariah 12, which I think is foolproof, then it cannot be said then it cannot be said that the destruction of Jerusalem is the event described in Zechariah 12 or Mark 13. Some well-meaning Bible teachers claim this. They claim that everything we read in Mark 13, all of it, or most all of it, pertains to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. They claim that the cosmic events Jesus describes therein simply mean that Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed. They read the coming of the Son of Man in the clouds of heaven and suggest that Christ did come, in a figurative sense, in the judgment of Jerusalem and the temple. This kind of theology, as I've said in the previous message, is known as preterism. And I know of at least two very compelling radio Bible teachers who are local uh, who espouse this view of eschatology, including one who claims to be the Bible answer man. And so, you should know that, uh, that, this, that this view is out there. That all that we're reading in Mark 13 pertains to A.D. 70. I strongly, strongly disagree with that. And I think, it's, uh, I think it can be a very dangerous kind of theology in that because people will assume it's been done in A.D. 70, what, what coming of Christ are they looking for now? What... Uh, What manifestation of the Lord yet awaits? The Scriptures don't seem to indicate that the events of Mark 13, 24-26, which correlate with Zechariah 12, the Scriptures don't seem to indicate that preterism is the case. And while it really isn't our purpose today to respond to a preterist interpretation, I do want to say that the folly folly of preterism is perhaps most notable in Zechariah 12. Notice also what was mentioned earlier in Zechariah 12, that we can be sure that this is the nations gathering against Jerusalem. It says this, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place. In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Friends, that did not occur in A.D. 70. Just the opposite occurred. Just the opposite occurred. And Stanley Toussaint, a uh, a great uh, professor, noted this of Zechariah 12. He says, Rather than prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem, Zechariah 12 is predicting the exact opposite. It looks ahead to God's future deliverance of Israel when Jerusalem will again be surrounded by enemies. An event spoken of in Revelation 19. An event that carefully parallels what we're reading in Mark 13. The deliverance of Jerusalem, the salvation of the Jews, Israel's mourning for the tardiness of her conversion to Christ, none of these things happened in 70 AD. Not one. Israel was not delivered. Israel was not saved. Israel did not mourn. That is to say, mourn in repentance and faith toward Messiah Jesus. And so we can say with great confidence that what you and I are reading in Mark 13 pertain to future events. Future events. And by the way, that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. Notice what he he said at the end of Matthew 23. He He says this, You, Israel, shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus says, You're not going to see me again until you cry out for me. You won't see me again until you cry out for me. And uh, Dr. Ron Begalke concludes this section by noting this. He says, Jesus will not return until the nation of Israel repents and acknowledges Him as Messiah. Israel will turn in faith. They will turn in faith to Jesus in the future. And that's exactly what Jesus envisions in Mark 13. Take a look at verse 27. Notice verse 27 well. And then He, Jesus, will send His angels and gather together His elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. Not long before Jesus made this statement, He made quite a different statement in Matthew 23. Here, He refers to the regathering of Israel. Notice what He said a little bit earlier in Matthew 23. He said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So what's going to happen? See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What's Jesus saying in Matthew 23? He's saying, Israel, I tried to gather you. I tried to gather you. I tried to bring you to me like like a mother hen. But you have been so stubborn against me. So fine. Have it your way. Behold, your house is left desolate. This great city, Jerusalem, and its great temple will be destroyed because you refused me. So fine. Have it your way. Instead of being gathered in protection, you will now be scattered over all the earth. Such is the case in Matthew 23. Words that predict what happened in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Undoubtedly. 
undoubtedly. That is to say, verses 37 and 38. Verses 37 and 38 are undoubtedly the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Without question, Jesus is saying, because you would not be gathered to me, because you were so stubborn, fine, I'll let you go. I'll destroy your city. I'll let it be ravaged by Rome. The temple, it'll, it'll go up in smoke. Have it your way. That was Matthew 23. But Mark 13 is very, very different from that. Very, very different from that. What a difference we have in Mark 13. In Matthew 23, Jesus said, Fine, have it your way. Let this city and the temple be destroyed. Be scattered. But here in Mark 13, we have a new story. A new prophecy. Jesus isn't scattering anymore. He's gathering. He's gathering them again. Let's reread the entire context from 24 to 27. We're in a new kind of prophecy, friends. But in those days, after that tribulation, after, after, the sun will be darkened, the moon it will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fall, the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send His angels and gather, not scatter, gather together His elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. Reminiscent of Deuteronomy 30 and Isaiah 27, Jesus says, I'm going to regather you one day. You'll be scattered in A.D. 70, like I said in Matthew 23. But like I'm telling you in Mark 13, Jesus says, I'll come again, and this time I won't scatter you. I will gather you. Verse 28. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Back in verse 4 of this chapter, the disciples asked, Tell us, Jesus, when will all these things be? What will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? They had in their minds the, the destruction of the temple, the coming of the kingdom of God, the return of, of their Messiah in power and glory to become the king and the judge of Israel. They had all these things rolling through their minds and they're saying, when? When will it happen, Jesus? When? And here we have a simple parable describing the swiftness, the swiftness of the end of the age. Jesus says, just like we know summer is near, when we begin to see those tender buds on the leaves of the fig tree, so also we know the end is coming soon when all these things take place. What things? Well, we discussed some of these things already. Remember what we've been discussing in, in the prophecy of Mark 13. Uh, we've been discussing a great many things from in, in Numbers 1 through 8 there. Let's go to number 9. Also, cosmic signs in the sky, number 10. Jesus' physical return to earth in 11. The regathering of Israel. He adds those things which we've just covered to all these things that are about to take place. In particular, I would... Uh, I would again mark it at number 5 there and go from 5 on. I think that's what Jesus is discussing here. I think that Jesus is saying, hey, when, when, when you, you know, the first 1 through 4 there are things that happen, uh, but the end is not quite yet. It's the beginning of sorrows. Some put that at the start of the tribulation. Others put that in the history of, of the nation of Israel. 
I'll let you come to your own conclusion there. But from, from certainly from number five onward, Jesus says, hey, when these things are happening, when you see this abomination of desolation, run like mad. Because tribulation's coming. False messiahs and prophets are coming. You'll see cosmic signs in the sky and I'm coming. You'll be regathered. When you're transported from wherever you are to Jerusalem, know that redemption is near. It's coming. When these things now, when these things begin to occur, Jesus says, when these things begin to happen, we can be confident that Jesus is bringing redemption soon. Jesus, redemption, salvation, the kingdom of God, these things are coming near when we see these things happening. It will be so near, in fact, so cl- in such close proximity to the end, these signs will be in such close proximity to the end that Jesus goes on to say in verse 30, He says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. This generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. That is to say, the generation that sees these things will not die until it is accomplished, until all of it is accomplished. Now, the wording of verse 30, freely, I will freely admit, the phrase, this generation, in verse 30, has been a point of great contention over the centuries of Bible interpretation. Some see the words, this generation, and take it to mean the generation of Jesus' day or Jesus' contemporaries. And in fact, a careful study of, of the Scriptures will reveal that every other time the phrase, this generation, is used, Jesus does mean the generation of the first century. I will freely admit that. Every other time the phrase, this generation, is used, it means the people of Jesus' day. One of the more notable instances is found in, in Matthew 23 again. Take a look at what it says. And I send you prophets, Israel, to, to, to the Pharisees, he's saying. I'm going to send you wise men and scribes, but some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge and persecute, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Surely, what we read here in Matthew 23 is in reference to Jesus' contemporaries. I would agree with that. But some might say, Neil, if you're going to admit that every other time Jesus uses the word generation, He means the generation of the first century, why then should we interpret it differently in Mark 13? 30. You know what? That's a very fair question. It's a very fair question. And to those who espouse a preterist understanding of eschatology, they've got some good arguments here. I'll, I'll admit that. They've got, they've got a good argument here. However, I still maintain that what we're seeing here of the phrase this generation in verse 30 of Mark 13 does not mean Jesus' contemporaries. You see, all Bible scholars agree, all Bible scholars agree, that first and foremost, the context, let me say this very clearly, the context of a passage, first and foremost, governs the meaning of its words. Let me say that again. The context of a passage, first and foremost, governs the meaning of its words. Only secondly, are we to go to how those words are used elsewhere 
in other contexts to, to determine their meaning. The order of interpretation is clear. Context comes first. And therefore, in light of that order of interpretation where we take our immediate context first to get a picture of what this word could mean, and then and only secondly we look elsewhere for how it is used, keeping that order in mind, Mark 13.30 cannot merely be guided. The interpretation of this generation cannot merely be guided by how Jesus uses the word elsewhere. It must first be interpreted in light of its immediate context. And I, for one, think that we have already demonstrated very, very clearly that the context of Jesus' words is indelibly clear. He is speaking of the future. The future, personal, second coming of Christ to earth. And since that did not occur in the first century, then we should be readily accepting of an interpretation of the phrase this generation to mean the generation that sees the signs of the end. Thomas Ice also points out how foolish it is, in fact, to compare Matthew 23 with Mark 13. Notice the difference. He says this, when one compares the use of this generation in Matthew 23, which is an undisputed reference to A.D. 70, with the prophetic use in Matthew 24 or Mark 13, a contrast seems obvious. Jesus is contrasting the deliverance for Israel in Matthew 24 or Mark 13 with the predicted judgment of Israel in Matthew 23. So Thomas I says that it's not, it's not up for discussion here. It's not even up for discussion. On, on the one hand, yes, this generation will be judged. This generation will, will see the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. Matthew 23. But go to Matthew 24. Go to Mark 13. Go to Luke 21. You've got an entirely different scenario. You've got an entirely new prophecy. And so you can't, you can't take the meaning of this generation and just drag it over from Matthew 23 and insert it in Mark 13. You can't do that. Thomas Ice has clearly demonstrated here that, that the context is key. One is referring to judgment. Another our text today, deliverance of Israel. Deliverance of Israel. And we might also say the disciples only witnessed one of these events. They only witnessed the judgment of Israel at the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Surely, in no sense, did they witness Israel's deliverance. In no sense did they witness the regathering of Israel. In no sense did they witness the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. Daryl Bach summarizes, he says, what Jesus is saying is that the generation that sees the beginning of the end also sees its end. When the signs come, they will proceed quickly. Finally, verse 31, Jesus says this, He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Clearly, Jesus' words here are very poetic and very expressive. His words find their origin in many Old Testament texts. The single point Jesus makes here is that we can be utterly certain of the veracity of His words. Even still, 
we shouldn't be quick to discount the other implications of this verse. Jesus does say plainly, heaven and earth will pass away. Poetic or not, the statement aligns nicely with the rest of Scripture. In fact, if you turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3, you will read an, virtually an entire chapter devoted to the, to the destruction of heaven and earth. And so while many scholars, you know, they see this text and they go, ah, poetry, symbols, that's it. That's all it is. I say, wait a minute. Remember the real cosmic events of Scripture. There are so many of them. And more often than not, when a cosmic event is listed, more often than not, it should be taken as literal. And so when we see this poetic phrase, we shouldn't cast it aside and just say, well, he just means to say his words are true. No. We should take it with a measure of literal interpretation. Find its comparisons with other Scripture and make a judgment then. I, for one, believe Jesus here is, though speaking poetically, is also speaking very literally. Heaven and earth will pass away. Second Peter chapter 3. But His words will not pass away. Christ's words are sure and they're steady. They're the very words of God. Isaiah says, The grass withers and the flowers, they fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Application. How do we, uh, how do we take all that we've learned? I know for some of you out there, you're going, oh, this is spinning my head here a little bit. This has been a tough, tough text. And to those who might be uh, newer here visiting for the first time, uh, I want you to know we're, we're not usually digging in this, this deep and having such a text that is this difficult. But nevertheless, I think it's been good to go through this. And I hope it's been clear. A couple things of application. First, Jesus' words in Mark 13, 24-31 pertain to the final, future, and personal return of Jesus Christ to earth. It occurs after all that is discussed earlier in Mark 13, including the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. It is not. It is not the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. It is after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Secondly, Israel refused Jesus as Messiah in the first century and was scattered. They were scattered at the destruction of Jerusalem. But at Jesus' second coming, Israel will believe in Christ for salvation, receive divine deliverance from her enemies, and be regathered to Jerusalem. What we read in Mark 13 is a very different story than what we read in Matthew 23. Third and finally, I want to say that interpreting prophetic scriptures is difficult. A good dose of humility and prayer for the Spirit's guidance is essential. And may we keep the study of last things in perspective. For while it is good to know of the future events of the coming King, it is far better to know the King who is coming. Amen? Amen. So I... I, I I caution us. Um, I love my preterist brothers in Christ. I do. I have friends who are preterists. Uh, I disagree, but that's okay. Because we share a common king. We believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And that we have in common. It is far better to know the coming king than to know just how he comes. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we just, we pause, Father, 
And we look over your word and we just recognize how great and how powerful and how deep it truly is. We open up your word, Lord, and we come across your words that at times are very, very difficult to comprehend and to understand. We approach it humbly. We need your help. We need you to show us, Holy Spirit, how to interpret. Father, but, but we need to also put forth what we believe is, is good interpretation of your word. We need to compare Scripture with Scripture and put forth what seems to be the best interpretation of your word. Father, I, I, I humbly believe we've done that this morning. Surely we are among many interpretations of this text. But Father, may we also, may that not let us tire from seeking to know the truth. It is important to know of the future events that are to come. It is important to look and expect and watch for Your Son who is coming imminently at any moment. So Father, help us to be ready, but greater still, help us to first know Jesus in faith that all who believe in Him may have everlasting life. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We look forward to that day when we are reunited with you forever in your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.